All right, good morning. Let's go ahead and make our way in the Bible to John's Gospel, chapter 5. And we're still working our way through John's Gospel here on Sunday mornings in a series we've entitled, That You May Believe. Hopefully you're at John's Gospel, chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the first 15 verses this morning. And the title of today's message is, Made Well. And let's begin by reading our text together this morning. Now after these things, there was a feast that the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped first into the water after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. And now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. While I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him, who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered him, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Each time I approach a passage of Scripture, regardless if it's for my personal time of devotion or if it's for teaching on Sunday or Wednesday, I always try to sum it up. And this time I came with a definitive word. Within these first 15 verses, we see mercy being displayed before us. The mercy of God. Mercy has often been called the greatest gift that you could ever receive and the hardest gift that you can ever dispense. Mercy is a challenge for many people to show mercy to an individual. When we talk about mercy, we are talking about compassion or leniency shown to another, especially an offender. A characteristic and action that comes from the very nature of God. On a human level, it is best described as one's consideration of the condition and needs of his fellow men. I think of one, Spurgeon, who wrote this, God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of its light or make space too narrow that diminishes the great mercy of God. Today, many believe that God helps those who help themselves. The number one quoted verse in the Bible is God helps those who help themselves. Okay, we're really slow today. That's not in the Bible, Pastor. 
That's not in there. I don't know what Bible you have, the New Living Weird Translation or something. That's just not there. No, it was actually coined by Benjamin Franklin in 1757. But I have discovered it's not that God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who are helpless. That is a definitive conclusion based upon Scripture. 340 times the mercy of God is found towards His people. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 9.13, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, Paul writes this, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love, which He has loved us, even when we were dead in trespass, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Mercy is a characteristic of the God in whom we follow. In fact, we find that every step of the way in God's dealing with His people, mercy is dispensed continuously. Over and over and over again. And it's our job now, as the body of Christ, to show mercy to others. God desires you and I to show mercy to others. Uh, There was this sign that I wish I could have captured a picture of. It said, no trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Now, underneath that sign, a funny thing was that that sign was posted by the Sisters of Mercy organization. (laughs) I thought that was pretty interesting. I also like this story of a woman who works for the American Red Cross. And she, one day while working, received a large box. And on the top of the box, it was written, Converted, we have no more need of these things. Use them for good. So she was curious being a Christian herself, what was in the box. And she opened the box to discover a stack of Ku Klux Klan garments, white garments. So she thought to herself, how can I best use these? So she tore them in strips, and those strips were used as bandages in Africa. Mercy being displayed. I believe that you and I today need to be Reacquainted uh, with the role of mercy that we are asked to play today in our nation. And I'll tell you, it's getting harder to show mercy. It's, hard, it's getting harder to muster compassion. And our text is going to display why we have a hard time doing that, but it's something we have to get beyond. Because Jesus showed mercy and compassion in the light of incredible resistance, in the light of incredible persecution. Mercy was constantly being displayed through his life. And I believe that mercy and compassion must be displayed through our lives also. And I think of our text today. As Jesus made his way to Jerusalem, During an unspecified feast, we don't know what feast it was. Most likely it was Passover, but we don't know that for sure. But it was a time where all of the Jewish nation gathered there in Jerusalem. And we find Jesus next to the Pool of Bethesda, a name that means House of Divine Mercy. Now it is interesting that the Pool of Bethesda 
was a pool that was located near a gate. And a gate was simply a hole in the wall around Jerusalem, but it was known as the Sheep's Gate. And this is where you say, Pastor, why was it known as the Sheep's Gate? Well, it was known as the Sheep's Gate just because of that fact. Sheep were brought in through that gate into the temple area. And it was just that. It was a pool of water about three feet deep. It was next to the sheep's gate. And this pool was used to bathe the animals prior to them being used in the ritualistic sacrifices there in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the only way to get to the pool of Bethesda was through the sheep gate. Now, it is interesting that if Jesus found himself there at the pool of Bethesda, it meant that he entered into Jerusalem through the Seepsgate, the Lamb of the world, entering in, finding himself next to the pool of Bethesda, where individuals were laying on five porticos, porches, around the pool of Bethesda. And they were laying there for a certain purpose. Now, if you're here today and you have the King James Bible or the New King James Bible, we have verse 4 in this text that gives us an introduction to the tradition. But if you have a newer translation, the NASB, the ESV, the NIV, and so forth, verse 4 is not found in your Bible. And let me explain why. The Greek text that the newer translations are based upon find that verse 4 the way we have it, and I'll read it for you again. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Uh, then whoever stepped first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. We have 2,000 manuscripts of the Gospel of John. These are copies of the original Greek manuscripts. We have 2,000. And in 900 of them, we have this verse given to us. But they are in 900 of the later manuscripts that we have. The New King James and the King James Bible were based on a set of manuscripts that were a little bit later in nature, uh, meaning that they were more 5th century and on. Okay, Now, some of the newer translations are based on the Greek text that take some older manuscripts into consideration, and in 12 of the older manuscripts, this verse is not found. I did discover that this verse was quoted by Tertullian in the 3rd century, and that this verse was also quoted in um, Tenacian's uh, Diatessaron, which was simply the, it was a Greek copy of the four Gospels put together. I do not believe that this is in the original text, but I do believe that it is alluded to in verse 7, which is in the original text. Meaning that the purpose of all of these here were to wait for the waters to be stirred. There is no doubt that that is in the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have. I believe that verse 4 was a marginal note that was then inserted because that's what a scribe would do. Either way, we know that people were waiting around the pool of Bethesda. They were waiting for the waters to be stirred, based on the evidences of verse 7. And their tradition had it that the first one in would be healed. Now, historians tell us that at any given time during the year, there were roughly about 300 around the pool of Bethesda. But during the time of the feast, it would swell to 3,000. 
3,000 individuals would lie next to this pool in hopes of being alleviated from their afflictions. Again, it was a pool that was known to be the house of divine mercy simply based upon its name. And here we see Jesus entering into Jerusalem through the Sheep's Gate, finding himself at the Pool of Bethesda, 3,000 people around him, and he specifies one person. And he looks at that person intently in verse 5. And he knows that that person has been in that condition a long time. And he asks a very unusual question. After knowing the person's condition... And knowing that the person is there waiting amongst the 3,000 to be healed, Jesus asks him the question, do you want to be made well? Sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? Uh, No, I'm just laying here because this is the thing to do. I just wanted to be with everybody else, hopefully maybe catch a picture of the angel. Of course he wanted to be healed, right? Then why in the world would Jesus have ever asked such a question? Well, it's an assumption that he wanted to be healed. Because being a beggar or being lame was actually a very lucrative position to be in. Do you know sometimes that they would gather so much in alms and in giving that many of them no longer went to the temple to seek uh, healing. They went to the temple to seek alms and to be uh, provided for through people's generosity and giving. Do you know a recent study was done, and, and I thought this was interesting, on panhandlers, panhandlers. You know, you go to uh, the city of Chicago and you find people, you know, panhandling. When I went to Washington, D.C., they were every other, every other block, uh, people panhandling. And, you know, I was like, hmm, that guy's uh, panhandling with an Armani suit. Uh, uh, what's up with that? Uh, Well, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But did you know that they did a study sending college students out and college students then would hire individuals. Those individuals would go out and they were doing a study to see how much money could be given to them and so forth. And they recorded that $300 a day could be provided on average for person panhandling. I thought I rethought my entire career path after that. (laughs) I was like, that's pretty lucrative, if you think about that. Jesus wanted to know if this man had become so accustomed to his condition that he was now apathetic. He was complacent. He was fine with it. He was indifferent to any type of change. But Jesus, in the question, also wanted to draw this man's helplessness out of him. He wanted to show this man that he was incapable of healing himself. He wanted to bring the man to the acknowledgement of the identity of Jesus Christ. And he asks this simple question, do you want to be made well? The man responds with a very pragmatic response. The sick man answered in verse 7, answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. He was completely looking at someone else to help him to provide that healing for him. Jesus wanted to circumvent it all. Jesus wanted to demonstrate to this individual that it wasn't man who was going to heal him. And what another man wasn't willing to do on behalf of this individual that has been in this condition for 38 years. Now the average lifespan of a person at that time was 45 years old. 
So you're talking the majority of his life was spent in this infirmity. And in all of that time, this man had come to the conclusion that mercy was not going to be rendered or given to him by another man. I have no one to put me into the water. And while I'm moving down there, or even someone is gracious to bring me halfway, someone else gets in there before me. This was his last hope. And the mercy that he was denied by others was shown by Jesus Christ in verse 8. And Jesus said to him, Take up your bed and walk. No big fancy affair. Jesus did not say, Wait, I'll heal you, but first let me get the lights with my name in the backdrop. Let me get everybody's attention. Let's go on television and heal. No, just take up your bed and walk. Just do it. Take up your bed and walk. It wasn't too hard for God to do. He just did it. And this man in verse 9, And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. If you and I are going to be agents of mercy and compassion to others, which I think is so desperately needed. There are two practicalities that I find in the first nine verses that we can apply today. Number one, we see that Jesus went to the feast. He was around people. You know, I'm discovering that many Christians want to hide today from the world. We just want to stay in our own little Christian safe subculture that allows us to our, our Christian music, our, our Christian programming, our Christian entertainment. You know, it's okay if I come to church because I'm safe around my Christian friends, but we're really becoming unwilling to engage the world. And there's a couple reasons for that, and I'm going to give that to you in just a minute. But understand this Jesus placed himself in a place where he knew the need would be great. He went there, purposely through the sheep gates, undoubtedly, to get to the pool of Bethesda. He sought it out. And if you want to begin to really show the mercy that God would have you show, and if you really want to be used by God in that way, here's a great way to start. Each and every Sunday or each and every Wednesday that you simply come to church, let it start here. Make yourself available to God to be used by Him for His glory to show compassion or mercy to somebody else amongst your church family. You can start right here. And then during the week as you're at your workplace or you're out and about, look for opportunities. And that's point number two. Look for opportunities where you can show the mercy of God. Let me give you this verse, Galatians 6.10. Therefore, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to all, especially to those who are in the household of faith. And I think many of us have to ask ourselves the question, why do we come to church? Well, if you come to church to be equipped for the fulfilling of the work of the ministry that God has chosen and uh, you for, absolutely, that's wonderful. That's what you should do. But coming to church isn't just about getting. It's more about giving. And if you come hoping and looking to be equipped, I will fulfill that for you. We will equip you to fulfill the work of the ministry. We will teach you the word of God. We will do that. Now we ask you to come and look to give. Meaning, if you're here and you see a brother and sister in need, 
You don't have to come to me to say, listen, I saw that somebody in our church doesn't have any food. Do you think it's God's will that I feed them? Uh, I don't know. Let's fast and pray. Okay, we're done. Yes. There's the answer. Yes. Help them. Hey, so-and-so is going through a really difficult time. They've been sick for a long time. Do you think it would be okay if I brought them a meal? Here's God's will. Yes. Show mercy. Show compassion. Start here. And you know why? Because it's contagious. Then you'll beginning to cultivate in your heart to look to show mercy to people outside the church. And I know it's becoming even more difficult to do so. And we have to guard ourselves that we don't become like the critics. We're going to talk about the critics in just a minute. But we need to guard ourselves as Christians that we don't become like them. So the first thing is be around people where you can show mercy. You can start right here in the house of God. Secondly, look for those opportunities. Jesus in Matthew 9.36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. I love the story of a, a little boy who was first fitted for glasses. And he was so bummed out that he, he had to get glasses. He was about 12 years old. And so he went to school and his friend saw him wearing his brand new glasses for the very first time. And the little boy was just all bummed out. He's like, oh man, these things are a drag. Now I'm not going to be able to play sports. I'm not going to be able to do this. I got glasses. And the other little boy, his friend looked at him and said, well, after anything like my grandmother's glasses, that's a cool thing. I want glasses just like my grandmother if I ever had to wear them. This is the boy who got glasses. What are you talking about? Your grandma. Yeah, the the glasses that my grandma have are are incredible. I mean, when she sees me, she knows when I'm hurting. When she sees me and she knows that I'm sad, she cheers me up. When she sees me and she can determine if I need something. Well, it wasn't the glasses. It was the perception of the grandmother towards her grandchild. It was the love that she had for her grandchild that could read the expressions on his face and know how to meet that need. Hey, it's easy to go through life with blinders on, isn't it? It's easy to walk through life with blinders on saying somebody else is going to take care of it. It's easy just to walk by people in need saying, I don't have time right now. I've got my life, my agenda, my needs, and so forth. Think about that for a minute. Now, will God have you respond to every single need? We can't make that claim because he only responded to one out of the 3,000. All I'm asking you to do is keep your eyes open for when God does want to use you for His glory. You know, many people often criticize God for an apparent lack of mercy. You know, they they look at God or they make this accusation against God. Well, if God was truly a God of love, then how can there be so much suffering in the world? And they think you have, they have you stumped. As a Christian, well, that's a good question. Well, God must not exist because there's so much terrible things in the world. But what these same people fail to take into consideration is this. That if you look throughout history, it has often been Christians that have responded to the most needs of the suffering world, isn't it? How many hospitals have been started by Christians? How many orphanages have been started by Christians? How many food pantries have been started by Christians? When there are disasters around the world, who are the first organizations to respond to those disasters? Christians. 
Let me give you an example. This one just killed me. I was talking to some pastors who came back from Haiti after that terrible earthquake not so long ago. Do you remember that? It was horrible, wasn't it? Just to see the devastation there in Haiti. Well, a famous atheist named Richard Dawkins apparently wanted to show the world that atheists have a heart to give and to respond to the needs and the suffering around the world. So he began to pool all of his atheist friends and to raise money for the Haitians and to meet their needs and to help them in their suffering. And Richard Dawkins, at the end of the time of his fundraising, got up to the podium and said, our atheist organization has raised $10,000 for the needs of the Haitian people. And people clapped. And every dollar that went for it is important. And I don't want to diminish that fact. But little did he know that a Christian organization was going to get up to the podium next. And during their same time of fundraising, the Christian organization got up there and said, by the grace of God, we have raised $100 million. I don't think Richard Dawkins knew what hit him. Where was the compassion shown? Was it through the atheist organization? Or was it through Christians all over the world responding to that need? I thought that was incredible when I heard that. We often want to claim that God is insensitive to the suffering of the world, but we often dismiss what God is doing through his body to meet the suffering people of this world. But if we cease meeting that need, then we are ceasing from what God has commissioned us as Christians to do. But there are always those critics that will criticize you for meeting those suffering people's needs. Look in verse 10 through 13 with me. The Jews therefore said to him, speaking to the one who was cured, well, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. And then they asked him, well, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed, did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn for a multitude being in that place. There will be always those who criticize you for what you do. Here in our text, we find the Jewish Pharisees specifically, and I believe the word here in Greek that is used and translated into the English Jew is actually the Greek word for Pharisees and would be more accurately translated that way. For this man had violated a code of their Mishnah. The Mishnah was a written code that the Jewish Pharisees had written to help people interpret the Old Testament law. Specifically, the verse that they wanted this man to understand is found in Jeremiah 17, 21 through 22. Thus says the Lord, Jeremiah writes, Take heed to yourself and bear no burden on the Sabbath day nor bring it into the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your house on the Sabbath day, and do not do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day, as I have commanded your fathers. That's their proof text. The Mishnah then clarified that anything over the weight of two dried figs was a burden. So you couldn't carry anything over two dried figs. That's not what God said. 
That wasn't the boundaries and the parameters that God stated there in Jeremiah, but that was their rendering of what was considered a burden. Did you know that it was also a burden for an individual to take up and put in his false teeth during the Sabbath? Now, first of all, I didn't even know they had false teeth back then. But it was unlawful for them to pick it up because those false teeth weighed more than two dried figs. I don't know what those teeth were made out of. But this individual was now being criticized because the healing took place, which they're not even really acknowledging or glorifying God over. They're more concerned that their rules had been violated. But I've been healed. I, was, uh, I had this infirmity for 38 years. This man came to me, said, take up our bed and walk. I took up my bed and I walked. I've been healed. Well, <clears throat> he didn't do it according to our rules. First of all, he did it on the Sabbath. Now, if you look very carefully, Jesus loved to break the Pharisees' rules. Not the law. The Pharisees added tradition and rules that they placed upon people. This is what Jesus said when he said, you have created a burden that you yourselves cannot carry, but you expect others to do so. And he is using this event, this act of mercy, to start stirring up a new controversy. And this is the beginning of him challenging the religiosity of the Pharisees there in Jerusalem. But there will always be those who criticize what you're doing for God. Specifically, and this is where we can fall into danger today. This is very important that you listen to what I'm about to say. Today, more than ever, because of the current condition of our society, it is easy to become jaded, isn't it? It's, e- it's becoming even easier to become a little cynical. And it's, being, it's becoming even easier to walk by needing people and say, do they really deserve it? Do they really deserve my mercy? Do they really deserve my compassion? This was the whole argument that the Pharisees placed to Jesus when talking about loving thy neighbor as loving yourself. What was their response? Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is worthy of my love? And then Jesus goes into the parable that we know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he points out a man in need, and the one who responded was the Samaritan, one who was despised by the Jews and the Levitical priests. Those two passed by him. Those two dismissed him. There was no way they were going to get involved. But the Samaritan picked him up, took him to an inn, had his wounds dressed, and so on and so forth, and paid for it all. And Jesus was describing there that your neighbor is the one you see in need. That's what he was saying there. But today, we want to justify our selection of who we meet needs to or not. Not based on God's will. If God chooses not to use you to meet a need because he wants to use somebody else, that's fine. But I'm talking about that selectiveness that we have already predetermined in our mind. Walking by someone who's homeless and saying, I'm not going to give them five bucks because they're just going to spend it on booze. How do you know that? And even if they do spend it on booze, that's between them and God, isn't it? Or a brother in need at church. Or a sister in need at church. You know, I saw that coming from a mile off. I can't believe that they fell into that trap. I can't believe that they did that. I can't believe the decisions that they made. Well, God is just going to have to work through it now. 
And maybe those consequences are being used by God to show that person to make wise decisions in the future. But think about your own heart attitude towards that. All that is is criticism. That's becoming cynical. Beware of that, guys, because it's going to dull you to the needs that God may have you fulfill. When I see somebody in need now, I just simply ask God, would you have me meet that need if I'm in doubt? Would you have me meet that need, Lord? Would you have me show compassion? Would you have me show mercy? And I tell you, I often fall into the trap. Well, do they really deserve it? Yeah, thank God that Jesus didn't ask that of me. Boy, I could show mercy to Eric right now, but did he really deserve it? I'm going to answer that question for you. Did I deserve God's mercy? The answer is absolutely not. And yet he showed it to me. And this man God chose and selected to heal. But there will always be those who criticize and will challenge that need to see if that person is really in need or not, or should you be more selective, and so forth. But then there's a second meeting between the individual and Jesus that we must not dismiss, found in verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple because the work wasn't done. I added that. And said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, if you read that objectively, you ask yourself, somebody who's been in an infirmity, who couldn't walk for 38 years, what could be worse than that? What could be worse than that? See, we ask that question simply based on a temporal perspective. He says, go and sin no more. What does sin lead to? Not only physical death, but spiritual death. Jesus is warning him that you've been made well. Now understand that sin will cast you into a worse fate than your infirmity did physically. Spiritually, you must deal with your sin. That is the message. That is the message that I want to get to each and every one of you. Because what Jesus is bringing to this man's attention is this. All the mercy that Jesus has shown up until that point should lead them to a platform where the gospel is being shared. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Sin no more, lest a worse a fate come upon you. Jesus is saying to this man, your sin must be dealt with. Folks, if we are going to evangelize the way God has asked us to evangelize, we must predicate that evangelism with mercy, with compassion. Showing people that we are willing to meet people's needs and to share the gospel with them. Now, the gospel should be shared at any time. When it's appropriate to share the gospel, share the gospel. Let the gospel reign forth. But I will tell you today, many are challenging Christians because of an inauthentic gospel presentation. Meaning, we talk about the gospel, but we live as if we don't believe the gospel. That's inauthentic. If we're going to share the gospel with others, we better be living what we believe. We better be showing that through our life, through love, compassion, grace to others. The same love, compassion, and grace God showed us. 
We should be able to forgive others like God has forgiven us. That is the dynamic in which we need to address today. But when we talk about Christianity and we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, today more than ever, people need to see that the gospel is real in our lives that we are willing to sacrifice, that we are willing to lay down our lives for the gospel's sake. If you look through history and you see that the point of the beginning of the church all the way to the fourth century, the church was continuously persecuted by one group after another. But it was their uh, means of handling the persecution that began to soften the hearts of their persecutors. It's when they did so in such love and grace, the first martyr Stephen forgiving those who were stoning him, leading Paul the Apostle to a place where he was now open to the gospel. And it was through 400 years of suffering before Christianity began to take a real prominent place. People were willing to listen to Christianity because of the fact that people before them had gone and had died for their faith and showing that those individuals that we are sharing with, that there's something real to what we believe. We have to show them what we believe in our lives. We have to demonstrate that. And Jesus Christ gives us a beautiful picture. And he does throughout the Gospels often, meeting people's when they were hungry, he fed them. When they, they were in need of healing, he healed them. But it always led to the Gospel. It always led to the dealing of sin. And so should we look to allow mercy and compassion to be the forerunner of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes you're not going to have that ability just for t- because of time's sake. And it's key crucial that you know the gospel and be able to share the gospel at any time God requires that of you. But as a whole, if you are working with people day in and day out, show mercy to them. Show compassion to them. Come alongside of them when they're hurting and in time of need. And see the platform that you gain with them to share the gospel. With family members, do the same thing. Allowing them to see that what's in you is real and that it's transformed your life. Jesus said, sin no more. Worse things come upon you. Today we want to dismiss the notion of hell altogether. It's too uncomfortable to consider. Or others find that it's just How can a fair and loving God send anyone to hell? I ask the question, what more can a fair and loving God do to keep anyone out of hell? He sent His only begotten Son. That whomsoever shall believe in Him shall not die, but have everlasting life. What more could God do to keep you out of that place? One famous evangelist said this, you know, people who go to hell have to work really hard to get there. You have to climb over Christ. You have to climb over the cross. You have to work around the Holy Spirit and so forth. You can get there if you so choose, but you have to work really hard to do so. I I love this point of showing love. Uh, The same pastors that I was with that were talking about their relief efforts in Haiti were also talking about their relief efforts after the first Gulf War in Iraq. We are a proud partner of Operation Christmas Child. 
What a phenomenal ministry it is. Well, in the mid-1990s, after the first Gulf War, a team of pastors brought in shoeboxes to Iraq. And they were actually given the time to speak with the minister of religion of Iraq to describe and to show him what they were doing. Being an Islamic nation, they didn't know what kind of reception the ministry of religion was going to give them. But they sat with him, and they showed him the shoebox, showed them what they wanted to do, and said, we want to show the love of Jesus Christ to the Iraqi people. The minister of religion paused for a moment, and they thought maybe their endeavor was in jeopardy. And the ministry of religion looked at these individuals, these pastors, and stated, I'm now beginning to understand that all Christians do not hate us, but you actually love us. And they were given full access to Iraq to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. That ministry of religion said, this is the first time I have seen the love of Jesus in a simple shoebox. Do you see how desperate people are for love? Do you see how desperate people are for compassion? Do you see how desperate people are for God? They're not seeking after Him. They're in complete need of Him, but they don't even realize their need. Don't you understand that there are many today that need mercy and don't realize that they need mercy? That they are in a horrible predicament. Their life hangs in the balance. But they have pushed that notion out of their mind and clouded it with every lie that the enemy would pose. But what they are in need of is mercy from God. Because right now, as a sinner, they are faced with the wrath of God. And it is only through Christ that we can escape that wrath. But again, the lies cloud the mind. And the individual doesn't even understand that they are in need of mercy. I I think of the one politician who had his picture taken. And after his picture was taken... He received it from the photographer, opened it up, and was furious. Immediately packed it back up, got into his motorcade, and went to the studio, approached the photographer, and said, this photo does not do me justice. The photographer said to the politician, sir, with a face like yours, you don't need justice, you need mercy. (laughs) Often people don't understand the mercy that they need. Any time that I share the gospel of Jesus Christ, I can see in their eyes that they have no clue where they're standing with God. They have rationalized it. They have absolutely uh, convinced themselves that they are okay, that either they're a good person or because they believe in their concept of God that they've created by going to the smorgasbord of religions and creating their own plate that they call God, that it's going to save them. It's not. See, this man knew that he was in need of help. 38 years he'd been reminded of that. Sometimes it takes years before a person really sees how deficient that they actually are. And it's at that point that our mercy can be used by God as a platform for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I truly believe that we are living in the last days, folks, for many reasons. But you know, when I say that, and I 
wait with anticipation for the Lord's return. Can't wait. But you know, I have family members who don't know him. I have friends who don't know him. I have people I care about dear, deeply who don't know him. And I see all the signs. I see the handwriting on the wall. I see the indifference of many. I see how easy it is to become jaded. I see how easy it is to selectively disperse mercy and compassion to some and to determine that others just don't deserve it. But here's the the whole thing. If Jesus Christ did all that he did to save those and me, to what length should I go? How far out of my comfort zone should I go? You know, again, it's easy to stay where it's comfortable. It's harder to go out and engage people, to start conversations, to deal with their objections. It's difficult to do so. It's difficult to show mercy when you know that person probably wouldn't show you mercy. And you know what infuriates me? I'm going to get on my soapbox now. When these celebrities come out and they say, this is what we're doing for all the hurting people around the world. And one celebrity even made it known that unlike Christians, we are not asking them to believe in the gospel. We are doing it unconditionally. Does that sound great? So we're going to make sure that you're temporarily taken care of and we don't care where you spend eternity. See, as a Christian, I can't do that. I can't just meet people's temporary needs, their physical needs, their felt needs, without dealing with the overall issue. I have to share the gospel. If we're going to disperse mercy, if we're going to disperse compassion, the most merciful message that we have is that Jesus Christ came, he died, and he rose again. The greatest act of mercy and grace ever displayed to the world. How can we not engage people in that conversation if we are going to be ambassadors and agents of mercy and compassion to a fallen world? Allow the acts of mercy and compassion to build that platform for you to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look for those opportunities. Put yourself in a place where those opportunities can be found. Understand critics will come. That's okay, they came after Jesus too. But never forget to preach the gospel.